Ron, that song brings back uh, memories from years ago. My wife and I in a small Southern Baptist church, probably about 40 of us, and a little, little teeny organ, lap organ that they were playing, and we would be singing Revive Us Again. So uh, we're blessed, you know that? We are blessed of the Lord in so many, many ways, not the least of which is the music ministry of this church and how much I do appreciate all of you who give of yourselves faithfully and regularly to uh, enhance the ability of the congregation here to worship. So God bless you and thank you. A few years ago, I uh, planted a couple of citrus trees in my backyard. I did it because they're good for sermon illustrations. No, actually, uh, I did it because I uh, was hopeful of the results. But uh, the interesting thing was that I had these two uh, citrus trees. I bought them at the same time. They were both relatively close in terms of height and weight. They both had one piece of fruit hanging from them when I planted them. So I was very optimistic that these were real trees that were going to produce real fruit. And I, um, you know, put them in the ground and I faithfully watered them identically and I fertilized them identically. Yet, uh, four or five years later now, one tree absolutely towers over the other one and is, produces fruit on a ratio of about 10 to 1 over the other citrus tree. And so why is that? Why is that that two identical trees or appeared on the surface to be identical trees have such a different outcome when they receive such similar treatment. Well, that's an analogy, I think, of the spiritual life. And uh, the Bible often uses agricultural analogies to um, communicate spiritual truth to us. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and in verse 6 that I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And that's the answer for my citrus problem. And that is that God is causing the growth and in His providence He's determined that one tree will outproduce the other uh, ten to one. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3. We are looking this morning, or beginning to look at the uh, church at Philadelphia. That's page 1227 in your pew Bibles. We're going to look at the church of Philadelphia here spread over a couple of weeks. It's just too much material to jam together. So this morning we're going to begin to look at the five facets of Christ's examination of the church at Philadelphia that we must understand so that we can discern what makes for a great church in the eyes of the only one who counts, God Himself. Let me read the text for you, beginning in verse 7. Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. 
Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's talk a little bit about the background of the city of Philadelphia. As we have found week in and week out, These letters to these historic seven churches are rooted in a real historical situation and knowing something about what was going on back then helps to open up the text to us today. So it's worth it a little bit to kind of figure out what was going on. The city of Philadelphia was an interesting city located about 30 miles southeast of Sardis. It stood at the eastern entrance of a broad valley. The valley passed through Sardis, and then it led down to the Aegean Sea near Smyrna. So this long valley led from the sea all the way up to the city of Philadelphia. And the interesting thing was that the commercial traffic that would come in by water to the port near Smyrna would then pass through this valley. It would pass by the city of Sardis. We talked about that last week, right underneath those high walls that stood atop that 1,500-foot plateau. And it would move further inland, further east, until it reached the city of Philadelphia. This city was the last stop on the line before you entered the vast central plateau of western Turkey. And so it was called in ancient times the gateway to the east. The gateway to the east. If you were moving east and up and into that vast and populated central plateau, you would have to pass through the city of Philadelphia. It was one of the youngest cities. In fact, it was the youngest city of the seven cities of the apocalypse here. Founded in the second century B.C., interestingly, as a missionary city. It was established as a missionary city and its purpose was to spread Greek culture and language into the interior of what was known as Asia Minor in those days, modern day Turkey, up into that vast central plateau amongst the kingdoms of Lydia and Phrygia that were located in that central plateau area. So the city was purposefully and strategically planted in order to have a missionary impact upon their nation. That missionary purpose, by the way, was fulfilled within 150 years because the writers tell us that the ancient Lyconian language, or Lydian language rather, excuse me, the ancient Lydian language was completely done away with within 150 years and they only spoke Greek throughout that whole part of western central Turkey. So this missionary city was effective in its purposes. It was named after its founder, Attalus II, king of Pergamum, 
who also himself bore the name of Philadelphus, which means lover of brother. And he bore that name because of his intense loyalty and devotion to his older brother. And thus, when the city was established, it was named for him, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Now, the city had a lot going for it, but it did have a major drawback. The major drawback was that it was located on a significant fault line. Now, we ought to be able to relate to that, right? This city and the area was constantly subjected to seismic activity. And in A.D. 17, the ancient writers tell us there was a massive earthquake that tore through that central, that valley, and it, it obliterated the city of Philadelphia. It was leveled. It also knocked down many other cities, but Philadelphia as itself was wiped out. And it began to be rebuilt and certainly was being rebuilt still during the time of the letter that we're before us this morning. But one of the interesting things was, is that not just was it leveled in AD 17, but there was a series of violent aftershocks, the ancient writers say, that every time the population came back into the city to begin to rebuild, they'd get hit with another aftershock and things would begin to get knocked down again to the point where a portion of the population became so terrified of earth, of earth moving, of seismic activity, that they refused to return to the city and began to live in huts out in the countryside. I can relate to that as well. It wasn't that long after we moved to California that there was a great earthquake in Northridge. Do you remember that? It woke me from my sleep on a holiday morning. And uh, by the time I figured out what was going on, it was pretty much over. But my boss at uh, Bank of America at the time lived out in that area, Santa Clarita, and it so devastated his house and frightened his wife that they walked out of the house never to return. They sold it in an as-is condition with a broken 250-gallon saltwater fish tank all over the living room floor as part of the earthquake. So it can terrify people and it can cause people to refuse to move back, and that's the situation in Philadelphia. So this place was rocking and rolling, if I can say it that way. Beyond that, religiously, because of the tremendous volcanic activity of that area, the soil was very uh, appropriate for grape growing. And so there was a massive grape crop, and with the uh, production of vineyards, uh, particularly in the pagan world, comes the, the uh, worship of the pagan goddess of wine, Dionysius. And so the pagans were given over to the worship of wine, and you can assume the associated debaucheries, that would come along with it. The city of Philadelphia also had a very large Jewish population, and this population was hostile to the infant Christian church. So here's the setting. And a missionary city, somewhat devastated, a pagan environment given over to wine, a hostile Jewish uh, contingent, and an infant Christian church. Let's pick it up in verse 7 now with Christ's command to this church. He writes to the angel of the church, right? We've said over and over again, this is the, this is the messenger of the church. I'm persuaded that this is the pastor of the church. So writing to the pastor of the church in Philadelphia, Jesus takes to himself 
a number of titles, and he does this in every letter. And the titles that he uses for himself directly uh, anticipate and speak to the issue facing the congregation. And this, this is no different here. And so Jesus takes to himself a number of descriptions that speak specifically to what's going on here in the city of Philadelphia. These descriptions, as you see them in verse 7, break down into three distinct aspects of his character and his position. So let us unpack that a little bit with the first aspect, which I'm calling set apart. The first aspect here is set apart. He who is holy. Literally, the Holy One. The Holy One. Now, the title, the Holy One, should strike your ear. or It certainly would have struck the ear of the early Christians because it is an Old Testament title for God, for Yahweh. So the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel, should have rung familiar in people's ears. Hopefully it rings so in yours. Beyond that, though, this title, the Holy One, is repeatedly used throughout the New Testament as a very common title for Messiah. It is spoken of for Messiah. For example, in John's Gospel, John 6, and in verse 69, you remember there that uh, Jesus has, uh, has driven away intentionally the, uh, the uh, well-wishers and the, uh, the uh, disciples who are not committed to him. And he turns to his own twelve and he says, are you going to leave me too? And, and Peter says to him, my Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God, Peter says. We have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. That is, that you are Messiah. That is what Peter was confessing here. And that is what bound up in this title here that Jesus says, He who is holy or the Holy One. He is Messiah. Now, when it speaks of holiness here, it's not talking so much about his sinlessness. That's not what is in the forefront here. But the idea of his complete devotion to God is being set apart for God, for the service of God. That's what's being communicated. That is, by the way, made explicitly clear in Psalm 16. And I'll have you go ahead and turn there. That's page 558 if you're using those few Bibles. Psalm 16, where it's very clearly pointed out that the idea here of the Holy One is, again, not His sinlessness, although certainly He is and was, But that's not what he's emphasizing. He's emphasizing that he is completely dedicated to God. He is set apart for God. Psalm 16, verse 1, the psalmist says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Verse 5, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. Verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. These are the words of David speaking prophetically of Christ himself. So the words of the Messiah here are his complete Commitment and abandonment from all other help and support, but God himself. Set apart, Jesus is and was to do the will of God. 
And as his disciples, we are to be set apart as well. Isn't that true? The Apostle Peter says, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be set apart for God because I am set apart. You shall be fully and completely devoted to your God. This is an important message for the church at Philadelphia. Surrounded as they are by a hostile Jewish culture and a, and a hostile and debauched pagan culture. They are to be set apart. They are not like the church at Sardis, right? Who had so imbibed of their culture that they were of no use. These people are to be set apart, and beloved, we are to be set apart as well. The message transfers to us. Jesus is the set apart one. His people are to be set apart as well. Secondly, he is the reliable one, verse 7, Revelation 3. He who is true, or the true one. The true one. The word in the Greek is alethanos. And it carries in the Greek the idea of genuineness. That he is real as opposed to unreal. It is used that same Greek word, by the way, in the Old Testament, in the, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament over in Exodus 34 and verse 6. And it communicates a little bit different uh, message there. The connotation in the Old Testament is has to do with the faithfulness or trustworthiness of God. So the same Greek word used can mean both that he is genuine or real and that he is trustworthy and faithful. And I think he is he is playing on both of the semantic ranges in both languages here. When Jesus takes to himself, verse seven, he who is true or the true one, he is communicating here to this little congregation that he is both the genuine Messiah and the one on whom they may depend. Again, don't forget, they're surrounded by Jewish hostility, right? Who's going to say about this Messiah that he is no Messiah at all, that he was but a common criminal forsaken of God, crucified and accursed, right? But he is saying to them, no, I am the genuine uh, Messiah. I am the real Messiah and I am the faithful and trustworthy one. I am the one who is set apart to God. I am the one who can be relied upon. Turn with me to the right, if you would, to uh, Revelation 6 and verse 10. Notice there that God the Father takes both of these terms to Himself and combines them. Revelation 6, we'll look at beginning in verse 9. And when He broke the fifth seal, that is, Jesus did, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you hold back your judgment? They want to know, how long will it be until justice is done? You are the faithful one. You are the trustworthy one. You are the genuine article. How long will it be before you bring about that which you have promised? From so long ago. You know, when hostility grows against us to the point where it's almost overwhelming, we need to be reminded, as this church needed to be reminded, that Messiah is real, Messiah is genuine, 
Messiah is faithful. Messiah is trustworthy. We can lean on His promises. We know that He will do what He said He will do. The alternative is despair. The alternative is despair. Back to verse 7, chapter 3, where He gives us the third aspect. His third aspect here is His sovereignty. His sovereignty. He brings forward His sovereignty. He is the one who has the key of David, he says. Who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. To have the key to something indicates your authority over it. Isn't that true? When you first started a new job, they give you a key to your office. Right? That indicates your authority over it. You have the ability to go in and come out and determine who can go in and who must stay out. So the, what's being communicated here is a picture of authority. And not only that, it's reinforced when it says that he opens and no one shuts. He shuts, no one opens. He has complete authority over the doorway. He is the doorkeeper. He is the one who lets people in. He's the one who keeps people out. He, he is the one who governs admittance or, or denial to entrance into the messianic kingdom, into David's house, right? Look again, verse 7, he has the key of David. Over in chapter 1, by the way, verse 18, Jesus says there that I am alive forevermore. I carry the keys of death in Hades. He does control death and the place of the dead. But here he's talking about his messianic kingdom, his Davidic kingdom which as played out in Revelation is ultimately the new Jerusalem. He controls the entrance into first the messianic kingdom and then into the new Jerusalem, which absorbs that kingdom after the thousand years. There's interesting background, by the way, for this verse. It takes us back to Isaiah 22. Back in Isaiah 22, we are uh, dropped into the middle of a prophecy there. I won't look, but uh, just kind of bring you up to speed on it. There, there is an unfaithful steward over the house of David, and his name is Shebna. He is an administrator over the treasuries of David during the reign of Hezekiah. And God sets him aside for his unfaithfulness, and he elevates a man named Eliakim. And he says of Eliakim in Isaiah 22, verse 22, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? God draws that, that illusion, that illustration, back from the ancient prophecies of Isaiah, brings it forward, and just like Eliakim was the administrator who, administrator who had control over the treasuries of the kingdom of David, so Christ, in a much fuller and, and um, spectacular way, has administrative control over the whole Davidic kingdom. He allows people in. He keeps people out. Now, that's an interesting message, isn't it? That Jesus alone has the power to admit or exclude from his kingdom. But it's not new to the text here. Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Verse 27, Matthew 11. By the way, what follows after that? Does anybody remember? 
Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? A grand and glorious invitation that Christ offers immediately follows behind this statement that I control access to the Father. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus says to his church, he came up and he spoke to them and he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. It is to Christ alone that we must submit. He is the sovereign one and it has been given to him by the Father to control access into and denial to the messianic kingdom. Look again here at verse 7. He is the one who opens and no one shuts. Who shuts and no one opens. Notice where it says who opens and no one will shut. That's huge. That's huge. Because there are times when it is overwhelming. There are times in which it just doesn't seem like anybody's listening, right? When you go door to door in the neighborhoods, Jim, and you pound on door after door and there's nobody interested, and you can become overwhelmed, you can become discouraged, you and your own personal evangelism with family members or neighbors or whatever, you can become discouraged at a point and say, well, what is the use? Nobody's listening. Jesus says, I am the one who opens and no one shuts. When Christ opens the door, the door is open. Access to the messianic kingdom is laid bare. And when Christ closes the door, beloved... There is no access at all. It is He who is the Sovereign One. The obstacles should not overwhelm us. The obstacles should be resolved within an understanding of the sovereignty of Christ. Now this church needed that message. This church needed that kind of a message. Why? Because they are under intense pressure. Right? Look down and... Um, in verse 9, we're going to get there, hopefully. But in verse 9, it talks about the synagogue of Satan, right? It's talking about Jewish persecution. Notice down in verse 10, he says, You kept the word of my perseverance. Notice again, back up in verse 8, he says, You have little power. This is a small and insignificant congregation that is under tremendous pressure to wilt. Tremendous pressure to give up. Tremendous pressure to say, What's the use? And Jesus comes to them and He says to them that I am set apart. I am the genuine one. I am Messiah and I am trustworthy and I control the outcomes. I control the outcomes. That ought to encourage them. That ought to encourage them to stay with the task. And beloved, that ought to encourage us to stay with the task as well. That it is Christ and Christ alone who controls. Jesus now turns, verse 8, to His commendation for this little church. He has reminded them of some intense and powerful theological truth that will give them uh, stable footing in the environment in which they are, but now He turns to commend them. Beginning in verse 8. And the one thing you should notice, by the way, and I purposely read through the whole letter of the church here, is you should notice there is nothing but commendation to this church. There is no condemnation to be found. I think I even wrote that into your handout for you. No condemnation, no correction for this church, only 
commendation. There's only one other church, by the way, among the seven who fit into the category of this church at Philadelphia, a church with no condemnation, only commendation. That is the church at Sardis, right? Or excuse me, the church at Smyrna, the church at Smyrna. That's Revelation 2, verses 8 and 11. And what do we know about the church at Smyrna? The one thing we remember about them is that they were a suffering church. They were a suffering church. They were a church under intense persecution. Fascinating, isn't it? The commendation, the unreserved, wholehearted commendation goes to two churches and both of them are under pressure from their surroundings, their community. Let's look at the commendation here broken down under three parts. There are three parts to this commendation beginning here in verse 8 and following. It is praise for their deeds. It is a promise of disciples and it is a pledge of deliverance. Verses 8, 9, and 10. Okay, so let's begin with a praise for their deeds. He says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. Now, I've got to, I've got to take you into a syntactical matter here. I hate to do this, but I think it's, um, <clears throat> it's worth it. So, so pay attention. Follow along here with me, okay? We're going to rearrange the text a little bit. I think it's not properly translated here, if I can say that. Notice again, verse 8, if you've got the New American Standard, that there is a, uh, what's called a full stop or a period at the end of deeds in verse 8. You see that? I know your deeds, period. That leaves the deeds undefined. Then we have a parenthetical. Behold, I put before you an open door, which no one can shut. And then we have what is called a hati clause. It's translated because. Because. And what that indicates, or the translators are indicating to you, is that the open door is because they have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. That their faithfulness has created the open door. But I think that that is not a correct way to put this verse together. The Hati clause translated here because can and mostly is legitimately translated as that, as that. And so if it's translated as that, then what we have is a statement where he says, I know your deeds that you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. That is, the deeds now become defined for us. We do have a parenthetical here marked with behold. We'll get to that in a moment. But now we don't have undefined deeds. What we have is a clear uh, elaboration by Christ of what it is this church has done so well. Lest you think I'm completely out on my own on this, the uh, English Standard Version and the NIV both translate uh, in a similar fashion to what I've just described to you. Okay, so I'm in at least reasonably good company. So, I think what it is, is it is an explanation in the first, second part of verse 8 of what it means to have or to know their deeds. The first thing he says is that the church has little power. Little power. This is a reference to their, to their smallness and size. It is also a, a reference to their limited influence. This is a small and insignificant church. In the eyes of the community, in the eyes of those that look on, this is a small place. Okay? It reminds me again to take me back years and years ago to the little Southern Baptist Church, right? I hadn't been a believer very long. A small and insignificant place. You'd drive on by it and wouldn't even notice it. That's what he's talking about here. 
And this shouldn't surprise us, by the way, right? The Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, consider your calling, brethren, right? Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. You are the offscourings of society, he says. You are nothing, and this church is nothing. Power and prestige in the eyes of the community, the world, is a commodity the church did not get until the 4th century. It wasn't until the 4th century, 300 years after the founding of the church, when all of a sudden the church began to receive the, the worldly trappings of power and prestige. You'll remember what Peter said, right? Acts chapter 3, verse 6, when the man approached him expecting to get something from Peter, and Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, right? But what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. Well, after Constantine in the fourth century, the church could no longer say silver and gold have I none. The church, at least Christendom, became woven into the political fabric of its society and became a power broker. But this little church has no power, has no prestige. They are insignificant in the community. And then Jesus goes from that statement of their insignificance to highlight their fidelity to the Word of God. Do you see it? You have little power. You're nothing. You're insignificant. You're a drive-by. You're not even a wide spot in the road. But you have kept my Word. You have kept my Word and you have not denied my name. You are under pressure to deny me, verse 10, right? Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. You have persevered. You have endured. The pressure is on you to deny me, but you have kept it. You have been obedient to the word of God and you have not wilted in the face of pressure. You've, you've dealt with it. Difficult, hostile circumstances, yet you are true to the scriptures at all cost. You are an obedient Church, you are an obedient church. And this brings to mind, again, what we spoke of earlier, right? The church at Smyrna. Do you remember the church at Smyrna? This was a church that was persecuted as well. This was a church that was that had fidelity to the word of God as well. This church also suffered from the Satan, the uh, the synagogue of Satan, the same Jewish hostility. But there's a glaring difference between the church at Smyrna back in chapter 2 and the church at Philadelphia here in chapter 3. The difference is that the church at Smyrna is offered no hope of the situation changing. They are given no hope at all. They are only told, be faithful until the end. Stay with it until you're dead, Christ says to them. But here the church at Philadelphia has a promise. It is a promise that their persevering obedience will produce conversion in some of their opponents. It will produce conversion among some of those that presently hate them. And that's the second promise here. It's a promise of disciples. Verse 8, it's the clause, the parenthetical, the encouragement clause. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. This is an encouragement to this church. Now, some see the encouragement here, and, and certainly uh, I can understand why they say this, as, as Christ's full assurance that they will enter into the Messianic kingdom. That he's just saying to this little beleaguered church that uh, because you have hung on, you will make it into my kingdom. And that's true. 
That's absolutely true. And, and uh, perhaps that's part of what he's communicating, but I don't think it's all that he's communicating. I think what he is, is giving them actually is a, is a promise to encourage them that says that they will have ministry effectiveness. That the tree will produce some fruit. And the reason I believe that is that there are a number of them, actually reasons that I believe that. Let me kind of lay them out for you. First is when he talks here about the open door. The open door terminology in the New Testament is universally used, if you exclude this passage here, it is universally used of unusual evangelistic strategic ministry opportunities. Now that may come as a surprise to some who talk readily about God opening and closing doors in your life for various things, okay? And if you like that terminology, that's fine, but it is not biblical terminology. Biblical terminology of the open door and the closed door rely or or speaks to unusual evangelistic opportunity. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8 and 9. Paul says, I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Verse 12, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking leave of them. I went on to Macedonia. Paul says, I was so distraught over the uh, the problems in Corinth that even though there was an open door for gospel ministry, I didn't even take advantage of it. I left. Colossians chapter four, verse two through four, Paul says, devote yourself to prayer. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I make it, may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. The open door in the New Testament is a door of ministry. In particular, it is a door of evangelistic ministry. And frequently it is a door in which there is great opposition. Thus, God must open the door. Can you imagine what a promise and encouragement that would be to this little church? Right? This is a little church. This is an insignificant church. This is a church under pressure. And he is saying to them that you are going to make a big impact for Christ. Now, beyond just the, 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 uh, the cross-references to the open door, there are other reasons. One is just the historical situation of the city of Philadelphia itself. Remember, I told you the city of Philadelphia was founded to be what? A missionary city. This was a missionary city. This was a city that had been designed to spread a message to a community or to a a world that was hostile to receive the message. Don't think, by the way, that the ancient kingdoms of of, uh, central Turkey were just welcoming Greek culture. You know, come on in. Where have you been all my life? They did not want it at all. Yet this missionary city within just a couple of generations completely spread Greek culture throughout that part of the world. So historically, the church of the city of Philadelphia is a missionary city. Beyond that, there's contextual support. Verse nine. That's where I'll take you now. Verse nine. Where he promises them fruit. He promises them some fruit of the ministry. Behold, I will get, I will cause. And by the way, just look at the margin there. You notice uh, that, that verb could be translated give. And uh, I think give is better. So behold, I will give some or whatever. You can see that those is italics. It's an insert. 
So I think a better translation, behold, I will give some of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and know that I have loved you. Just like Smyrna. This this church is being pressured by the Jewish community. He says the synagogue of Satan, right? We talked about that when we were dealing with the church at Smyrna. These are, these are Jews by physical descent, but these are the ones who have rejected Messiah. And so they may be Jewish outwardly, racially, culturally, but they are not Jewish inwardly, the Apostle Paul says, Romans 2, 28 and 29. But amazingly, against this hostile crowd, Jesus says that I will give a gift. I will give you a gift, and the gift is some of those from this synagogue. A portion of this community that is hostile and unbelieving will come. Look again at verse 9. I will make them to come and bow down at your feet. Do you see that? And to know that I have loved you. He will take a portion of the enemies of this church and he will convert them. He will change them. He will turn their hostility to a place where they will come and do homage before the believers. That they will acknowledge Messiah's love for this Gentile church. There was no bigger division in the first century. In fact, there is nothing in our century, I believe, that compares to the division between Jew and Gentile. It was an almost impossible gulf to cross over save for the blood of Christ. And so what he says here is that these that are actively hostile to you will be so transformed that a portion of them will come and they will bow at your feet and they will acknowledge that Messiah loves you Gentiles. This imagery, by the way, is all again drawn from out of Isaiah. Isaiah 60, verse 14. There uh, the prophet says, The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. There is an ancient prophecy that says someday the Gentiles will come and bow at the feet of the Jewish nation. That day hasn't happened yet, by the way. And it won't happen. Until Messiah returns, Zechariah chapter 8, verses 20 through 23, speak of the time when the Gentiles, ten of them will grab the hem of the garment of a Jew and say, take me to see your Lord. But for now, the nation is hostile. And the Gentiles are hostile towards Israel's Messiah. But drawing on that ancient prophecy with a paradoxical twist, Christ says in this local community that some of your opponents are going to come and they're going to fall at your feet. They're going to embrace your God. Now, you may be thinking, that's not fair. That's not fair. And by the way, in our household, the words that's not fair always mean I didn't get my way, right? Okay. That's not fair. The church at Smyrna suffered, didn't they? The church at Smyrna remained true to the Lord. And for the church at Smyrna, as best we can tell, nobody repents, nobody believes The church at Philadelphia, where their suffering is not as intense, the church at Smyrna, right, is told to hang on till death. Some of you are going to die. We're no mention of death here yet. Some of their opponents repent and believe. Why is that? Let your eyes go back up to verse 7 because there's your answer. He who has the key of David, right, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. The control of the gate belongs to Messiah. It does not rest upon a church. 
So how do I relate all this? How does this relate to us? Let's try to pull it together here. I would love to find in these verses a promise that our faithful attempts to evangelize the city of Upland will bear fruit. I would love to find that kind of a promise here. But the situation at Smyrna compels me to deny it. I can find no universal promise here that if you are merely faithful, that God will make your evangelistic efforts fruitful. The commendation for this church, again, look at verse 8, is based upon obedience. Be obedient and you will be commended, he says. It's not based, by the way, on the size or the prestige of the congregation. It's a commendation based on obedience. Beyond that, the passage is clear that Jesus has absolute control over the door of salvation. Absolute control. Beloved, that means that our response is to come in prayer and plead with Him on behalf of those who do not know Christ. We must be obedient to the Word. We must hang to the Word, verse 8, right? Kept my Word. We must hold fast in the face of persecution. We have not denied my name, but we must also beseech the gatekeeper to pour forth His grace upon this community, to unlock blind eyes and dead hearts. You've got to pray. Fourth, we must refrain from comparing ourselves to other churches. We must refrain from comparing ourselves with other churches, particularly with regard to effectiveness in ministry, because that is up to Christ. He may choose to open a door of effective ministry to a church, one church, and deny it to another. He may open it to us and deny it to others. He may deny it to us and open it to others. But if our concern is the glory of Jesus Christ in the conversion of this community, then what would we care whether they're converted here or down the street? Amen? It's only when we're building our own kingdom that we're concerned that they are converted here. We've got to refrain from comparisons. Finally, we are not large and we are not powerful. We are relatively unknown in this community and that's probably a good place to be. But by God's grace, we may have a large and powerful impact on this community. He may open the doors of blessing. We don't know. But we do know this. We've got to keep His Word and hold fast His name. Let's pray. Our Father, there is uh, plenty of encouragement and plenty of challenge packed into this letter to this church. A church in which the Lord Jesus Christ valued it with His piercing eyes. He found nothing to condemn. Yet in the midst of their lowliness, He found their fidelity 
to be something that was commendable and praiseworthy. And sovereignly, He also promised them impact on a community that hated them. Our Father, we have no such promise to us. But that does not mean that this, there's no lessons for us to learn here. May You enable us by Your grace to be obedient to the Scriptures. To hold fast Your Word. And should pressure and hostility arise, dear Father, the more we hold fast Your Word in a decaying culture, the more likely that will be. We too can receive the same commendation. So, Father, help us to keep our eyes on that. And then, Lord God, should you choose to open the floodgates of mercy, should you choose to move upon this community in a mighty way, should you call out for yourself 10,000 people, and should you choose to use us as part of that, or should you not, we will still give you the glory. In Christ's name, amen.